So our theme for this month has been, or the last two months, has been unshakable hope. And we're looking at the book of Thessalonians, if you're new with us this morning. And today I want to focus on this particular theme that you see on top of your screen, hope restored. We will meet our Savior in the air. We will meet our Savior in the air. Now one of the verses in 1 Thessalonians maybe the most comforting, the most enriching for our eternal perspective, the most kind of blood-pumping, exciting kind of verse, maybe in the whole of the New Testament. And, and I'm going to read these words to you this morning, this text. And like embers to a fire, I, I hope and I pray that even this morning they will encourage you in a very special way. The verse is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Hear these words. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. I'm going to read it again. Let those words settle into your heart deeply this morning. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. I think it's impossible to exhaust the joy bound up in those few words this morning. I think it's impossible to fathom the hope beyond hope that this promise contains for us this morning. I think it's impossible to plumb the depths of purpose, the depths of purpose that this verse gives us as followers of Jesus in our present age. You see, in just one short verse, Paul captures the ultimate goal and prize of our eternal existence, and that is to meet the Lord and be with Him forever. That's why you're here, anticipating that day. That's a long time forever. I have a picture here of, of, of sand. If every one of those grains of sand represents a billion years, you have to understand that that's just the beginning of forever. Ponder that. You will be with the Lord, the one who has saved your wretched soul and brought you eternal life forever. That's what we're dealing with this morning. And yet I think through the ages, the church has kind of struggled with this reality. There's great anticipation and there's great hope of this prospective day, but there's also some level of fear mixed in with this joy. There's grief for some over those who have died yet. And about this coming day, there is uncertainty, even a level of doubt about this day that kind of hovers or resonates even amongst the people of God. And we need to own that today as we enter into this text. Some struggle with this text because they say in Luke 9, verse 27, just one example, Jesus says this in Luke 9, 27, I tell you the truth. 
Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and all of his disciples have, have died, and Jesus has not come back. And they say, well, is Jesus telling us the truth here? There's a lot of theology packed into here. There's this a sense of the already, not yet. But when Jesus speaks here, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death. He's not talking about his final coming on the clouds of heaven. He's, he's making reference actually to what we call the transfiguration where he, he came also and glorified and Moses and Elijah were speaking with him on the mountain. And that picture of transfiguration was a picture of the resurrection, which was Jesus coming in power. So that, that's not that hard to deal with. But some have struggled not only with the idea of, you know, what, what's Jesus saying in these prophecies throughout the New Testament. Some have struggled to, to ask, what's going to happen with those who have already died and are in the grave when Jesus comes back? And, and the fear was that they were going to miss out on his return. And the fear was compounded by another fear that if they missed out on his return, would they miss out on being with him forever? Was this promise of Christ's return only meant for the living? What about our dead relatives? And so there was a level of fear and anxiety around this, and Paul's going to confront that with us, confront this text, or the, confront this, these realities this morning. And so we're going to open our Bible on some great promises in Scripture about the second coming, about our immortality, about the resurrection from the dead. Let's begin with 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 51. There we'll find these words. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with me on the screen. This is what Jesus says. He says, listen. Oh, not Jesus, Paul, who wrote this. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And that means simply this, that when God can, comes to judge the living and the dead, he's going to use the law to expose sin, to condemn humanity. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The return of Christ and your eternal immortality gives purpose to your life today. And Paul wants to encourage now the church in Thessalonians. And he says these words to the church in Thessalonians, verse 13. He says this, he says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for a blessing over his word. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is powerful unto salvation. We're talking about themes and things that far outstrip our ability to comprehend them. But we ask you for clarity. We ask you for patience. We ask you for love. We ask you for insight into your word this morning that brings us hope and brings you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is our theme, Hope Restored. We will meet our Savior in the air, and I just have three questions I'm going to ask again. I like to ask questions against the text. Do you um, know... There's an error there. What do I want to say? Yeah, do you know? Do you know the reason for this hope? Do you know what to expect when he returns? And do you know how to encourage others in or to this hope? So let's begin with, do you know the reason uh, for this hope? And now the hope that we're talking about, of course, is the hope of Christ's return, of meeting the Lord in the air and being with him forever. But why the question? Why ask, do you know the reason for this hope? And I think the reason I'm asking this question is that, that that's where Paul begins. Paul begins in our text in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. He begins by building a case for the hope that we have in Christ and his return. He says this in verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He's setting the foundation for this hope. But I, I want to, before we talk really about the foundation, we just need to understand what, what Paul is saying, because he's using expressions that maybe we're not really that familiar with, in, in common day talk, for example, he's addressing the reality of death. Now, that's very common in our day, of course. Death, it has been said, inspires a kind of fear in us that inspires all our other fears. I'll say that again. Death, it has been said, inspires a fear in us that inspires all our other fears. It's because of our fear and death that we have a, a lot of other fears. And Paul wants to extinguish this fear of death and the future hope that we have through sharing what Christ will do. And this is what he does. It's like he's standing there, wanting the members of the church to stand at the cemetery by a loved one they have buried who has confessed Jesus as Lord and say to them, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who sleep in death. 
So they are sleeping. They're dead. And what's going to happen to them? Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed about what's going to happen. Now, just, just so you know, Paul is not playing fast and loose with the harsh reality of death when he uses the word sleep, those who are asleep in death. This is a phrase that he's obviously picked up from whom? From Jesus. I don't know if you remember the story. It, Jesus often spoke about those who were sleeping in death, but, but maybe you remember the story of, of, of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of his, a brother of Mary and Martha, also friends of Jesus. And Lazarus got very, very sick, and Lazarus died. Jesus was many miles away or kilometers away, and he got the, the notice that, that, that his, his friend was sick and dying and may have already died. And this is what he says in John 11, verse 11. He says, after he had said this, that they need to go to Jerusalem or Bethany, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. As you would. Now the disciples say, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will get better. They didn't get it. And then we have this little commentary from the author to the Gospel of John who says, which is probably John, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Here's the point. If anyone can call death sleep, it is the one who has changed the permanency of death to a temporary reality. The only one in Scripture who ultimately can call death sleep is the one who has changed the permanent reality of death to something temporary. And his name is Jesus. Because he broke its chains. He broke the chains of death. But I just want to point out one other interesting fact that you should know. That nowhere in all of Scripture can you speak of Christ's death as sleep. And I think you know that. So the one who can speak about our death as sleep is Jesus. But we cannot speak of his death as sleep. Jesus died the death of deaths. His penalty, the penalty that he bore because of our sin, broke the relationship with him and his father, severed it for that time so that he bore the wrath of God against our sin. He faced eternal hell because of our sin. This is the death of death, and Jesus faced it. But because he faced it and because he conquered it, he can say of our death in Christ, it's merely sleeping. And so Paul picks this language up very carefully, and throughout the letters, he will talk about sleeping in death. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. He's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed of what happens to those who sleep in death. Now, just to be clear, he's not saying that when the body sleeps in death, that the soul also sleeps in death. What he's saying is that when you look at a body that has died... It really looks like that body is sleeping. That's the analogy. It's fitting. But what happens to us when we die? Our souls ascend immediately to be with our God in heaven. And so we do not hold, in this church at least, to soul sleep. That the soul sleeps until the return of Christ. No, we believe the soul ascends to be with God. And we read in 2 Corinthians 5 or 6 these words. He says, therefore, Paul writes, therefore we are confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, that is in this tent, we are away from the Lord. 
For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So there is this idea, this reality, that when you die, you are at home with the Lord, but you are away from the body. It's a pretty clear indication that when you die, your spirit goes up. But what happens to the body is that it sleeps in death. And therefore it is buried or burned. So we get that. Says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Because there's really only two ways to approach those who sleep in death. You understand that. The one way is in ignorance. To say, I don't know what's going to happen. And the other way is a believer. And say, I know what's going to happen. You see, Paul was confronting a, a, a thought of that day which was kind of hopeless. The philosophers of that day, now this is 2,000 years ago, but the philosophers of that day did actually speak about immortality, but they had no joy in speaking about the afterlife. There was no confidence that the afterlife was any good. There was no idea of what the afterlife even looked like. I, 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 in one of the commentaries, I read this second century um, letter, condolences letter to, to somebody... <laughs> And this is, what, this is how they captured the reality of death in, in, in a condolence letter. They said, Irene, to Tyonorophis or something, and Philo, good comfort, I am sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus, and all things whatsoever were fitting, I have done. So I've sent my cards, I sent my flowers, I prepared the meal, I've done what I had to do to bring them some level of comfort. But read this. But nevertheless, against such things, we can do nothing. Against death, we can do nothing. Therefore, comfort ye one another. With what? This is the pain that the, the, the non-Christian deals with when there's no hope after the grave. How do you comfort anybody? What do you say? But Paul says, I, I don't want you to enter into that worldview because that doesn't belong to us as followers of Jesus. What I want you to enter is the Christian worldview that brings hope in the face of death. And it's very interesting. In Greek, the word hope is not exactly the same as how we translate this in English. The word hope in English is really a feeling. You know, I, I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. In fact, I looked at the weather. It looks like it's going to be a really nice day tomorrow. I hope to meet you one day. There's a high degree of uncertainty in our hope, in our present day. This is what hope means in, in our English language. I think we have a little picture here of the definition of hope. Maybe not. No, we don't. It says it's a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. That's the English definition of hope. It's a, it's a feeling of expectation and, and, and desire for something to happen. Paul says it's, it's much deeper than that. It's stronger than that. The Christian hope in Greek, the elpis word in Greek, carries a measure of certainty, a high degree of certainty. Its fulfillment, it's going to, it's, its fulfillment is absolutely certain. So when Paul uses the word hope, he's not talking about a mere feeling, a mere kind of wish, a mere desire that maybe Christ will return and you're going to have to meet him in the air. No, he's saying this is a concrete reality. That's why we sang that hope, that song, Our Hope is Based on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. 
I love what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, and hope does not put us to shame. Because you can be confident in the things that we hope for as Christians. He will come back and we will see him. And what's that foundation to that hope, loved ones? What's the foundation then to that hope? Why is he so confident that this is going to happen? Notice what he does. Immediately after he talks about that hope, he points us to the cross. Do you see that? Verse 14. He says, for we believe that Jesus died. And all God's people say, amen. And we believe that God will, and we, sorry, that Jesus died. And we believe that Jesus rose again. And all God's people say, amen. And because of that foundational truth that Jesus died and rose again, this future expectation is secure. He will certainly come back because you already established the fact that he died and you have established the fact that he rose again. I remember talking to an ardent atheist who converted to Christianity. He was like the Lee Strobel convert, you know, Lee Strobel who wrote The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. This guy had a master's in astrophysics. He was way smarter than me. I felt like I didn't want to say anything because he knows how stupid I was. Anyway, I still spoke. But he scoffed at the ignorance of Christians who have this hope. He thought, he thought church was a fairy tale place for children. Maybe some kids think the same. But not wanting to disappoint someone, he was invited to a Christian service, uh, outreach service, and he went to that outreach, outreach, outreach service. And he sat at the very back, and he acted like he wasn't listening. Hope you're not doing that today. I'm looking at you. And the rest is history. Today, he's a sound, reformed, evangelical pastor. And I asked him, what happened? I can't quote him directly, so I'm just going to paraphrase, flesh it out a bit. He said, as I read scripture in the salvation story, he said, I was looking for the place where I could say this is a lie. But he couldn't. He said, the whole story of salvation from the beginning of the world through the birth and the death and the ascension of Christ is, is like a brick wall which, which each brick supports the other brick above it and you can't take out one of those bricks. Or can you? A little bit. The analogy is weak. But it's still like this. It builds on each other. Every truth in Scripture builds upon another truth. Every historical fact in Scripture builds upon another historical fact. And he says, I couldn't find out which brick I could take out to let this wall start coming down because I couldn't find it. You see, loved ones, the return of Christ and him coming with all those who have fallen asleep in Christ is as sure as the creation of the sun, the fall into sin, the return of Christ is as sure as the patriarchs walked the face of this earth, as the people of Israel landed in Canaan, as the kings led the people of Israel through the difficult times in the, in the first thousand years before Christ. It's as sure as the birth of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And this outstanding promise of his returns is built upon the foundation of historical, historical reality that Jesus has accomplished all that. That's where our hope is found. 
but what do we, now, now that the hope is established, what do we expect to see? What do we expect to see when, when Christ returns? He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Kids, Jesus is coming back. He's coming. What are we going to see? You know, there's an expression, we have heard that expressions in English, to quote Tim Hawkins, are sometimes overused. We use the phrase, that's the worst, and that's overused, or that's awesome, and that's also overused. But I want to tell you this morning that to describe the day of Christ's return as awesome might even not cover the power and the majesty and the grandeur of this day. If there's a word greater than awesome, it will describe the return of Christ. It will leave you speechless. But we do well this morning to not only see it on paper, but allow it to resonate in our mind as truth, because one day we're going to see it with the eyes of our own flesh, the return of Christ. We read, the Lord will descend from heaven. That means he will enter our three-dimensional world that we live in right now, the space-time universe that we exist in right now. And he'll become visible to us. Verse 14, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The multitudes of those who sleep in the dust, as we read in Daniel, will rise again, but their bodies are, are in the grave. Their spirit will have to come together and join with their body as they rise again. But they will come with Jesus. It's hard to picture that, I get that. But Paul continues, he says in verse 15, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's three things that, he, that, that build our hope in this reality. Here's the first, that the Lord himself will come down. Do you read that? Yes, he's gonna send his angels. Yes, the archangel is going to make a loud um, noise, <laughs> a voice of something. But we read in Matthew 24, verse 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So the angels will be employed. But who's leading this vast army? You can answer. Jesus is. You'll see him first. This is his mission for his church. Here's the second. He will come with a loud command or a shout, like a captain bellowing a command out over the ship on a stormy night, and people will listen. And there'll be as well the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. You know, commentators are struggling to kind of understand how this will all work itself out on the day of days when Christ returns. I, I, I don't know. But what I do know is this reality. It's going to be so powerful, this trumpet call and this calling out from God, that the earth will move to its command, to the command of God, so much so that those who are in the grave will come out, whether they're in the grave in land or whether they're in the depth of the ocean. They will come out with his command. Men. Women and children will hear his voice 
They'll come out of their coffins or their urns. Dust particles will become living cells, and living cells will form into bodies, and the clamor of bodies will break free to receive imperishable bodies, which now are embodied spirits, reunited to their bodies, and they will defy the laws of gravity, and they will ascend to meet their Savior. And Paul says this will happen like the twinkling of an eye. It will happen very quickly because nothing is impossible with God. This week, Tim Keefe sent me a beautiful British-American folk song called Old Churchyard. Churches often bury their dead loved ones outside the church building. You'll see this like this. It was a good reminder of the brevity of this life for those sitting in the pew every, every Sunday as they looked out the window. And a living hope that Christ will come to take them to be with himself one day. Listen to the imagery in the last verse of this song. It was too difficult to sing this song this Sunday. But listen to the imagery in this last verse. It says, I rest in the hope that one bright day, sunshine will burst through these prisons of clay. The trumpets will sound in the hills near and far, will wake up the dead in the old churchyard. Isn't that powerful? But whether your body is in a churchyard or another cemetery, whether it's been burned or whatever, whatever else, it will rise to meet the Lord in the air. And, the Lord, and, and Paul closes with this riveting verse. He says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And, and the word caught up here is the word rapture. And the Christian church throughout the ages has always believed in the rapture. We will be raptured. And that word rapture is actually a very strong word. It's a forceful word. It's like robbery. It's like plucking something out and snatching it and saying, I got it. The divine hand of God will divinely come and rob this earth of all his children. We will be caught up in the air Defying all the laws of gravity and anything that would hold us back. He will defy all that because he is God and he raptures his children from this earth. Now the dif difference between the kind of the reformed historical view of this and more dispensational view of this, I don't want to get into a whole lecture on this, is basically they say, think that, some people think that the rapture and the second coming are two different events. We traditionally, at least I do traditionally, hold to the view that the rapture and the second coming are one event. If you want to talk about that later, we can. It's not something that should divide the church, though. Jesus is coming back. The church will be raptured. Are you ready? It's probably a better question. Could you imagine just sleeping in your bed? Because some people will be sleeping when Jesus comes back. Um, and suddenly you are traversing through space without wings, flying solo. Imagine you're at work or in your car and you look up and suddenly you are flying above your vehicle and everything else is staying down there, but you are transcendent. You are transcendent. Now you're moving up. Nothing on earth would matter anymore. Your appointments, your debts, your sadness, your grief will be done. You will be flying to meet your Savior in the air. Now that's pretty awesome. I hope you see that as awesome. 
And some of you are going to say, well, why the air? I'm scared of heights. I don't really want to fly. In fact, I've never been on a plane before because, quite frankly, I just like to move horizontally, not above people, but with them. Well, some commentators have, have argued this case out a little bit, and I think I've come to the conclusion with them that the reason why we are meeting the Lord in the air is because the Lord Jesus Christ wants to display his authority also of the air. Now, if you do a little bit of research in Scripture, you realize that the devil, that great enemy of the Christian church, has his domain, you could say, in the atmosphere, in the air. This is what we read in Ephesians 2, verse 12, these words. It reads this, uh, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded that has nothing to do with what I want to talk about. So we'll exclude that. It's a beautiful verse. The devil in Ephesians 2 somewhere, it's called the prince of the power of the air. The devil is called the prince of the power of the air. That's his domain, the atmosphere, you could say. And he sends out his minions by the millions to, to invade upon the church and to trip us up and to distract us and to lead us away from Jesus. And Jesus will come back with his myriads of people in his, in his army of angels, and he's going to enter that domain and say, I am Lord of this domain And so with our glorified body, someone wrote, like a mighty conquering army, we will displace him who has bound, hounded us and harmed us our whole life. And as saints, no matter how terribly we have sinned, no matter how horribly we have failed, to declare victory over the one who first led us to the fall and then condemned us for falling will be an awesome display of Christ's victory over him. And we will be there to witness this. And that will be awesome as well. You will meet your Savior, the one who loves you with an everlasting love, who is wounded for your transgression, bruised for your iniquity, who has come to set you free. I just have one minute to, sh to share this, my last thing, my last point. Do you know how to encourage others in this hope? This is a living hope. Do you know how to encourage others in this hope? Shortly we will sing, and when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise. He will call me home. The Lord is my salvation. That's our hope. This is the message. And Paul says, therefore, in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. Are you able to do that, loved ones? Many of you know that we have a member of our church who's written a book, a lot, uh, written a book on grief and loss called Quiet Assurance. Thelma is here with us this morning. And I just queried her on this whole idea of grieving without hope. Because sometimes the church cannot get this right. And we can use verses out of scripture, out of context, and, and lay a deeper burden and, and, and weight on people who are grieving. And say, well, why don't you just have hope? Like, why are you grieving like that? And we can shortchange the grieving process and do so much harm to people because the way we approach them in their grief and she said this, she says, sometimes, I'm, I'm also having to paraphrase a little bit here, but sometimes people conclude that if they or others are grieving, they have no joy. Or if a heart is broken, so, it is, so, it, so, it, so they have no hope. 
We often want to measure, she says, our faith by how we are experiencing our grief. Rather than wrestling with the tension that both can be true, we grieve, yes, but we have hope. We weep, yes, but there is joy. We are grateful for our lives, yes, but we long for Christ's return. You see the tension? And you see, Paul is not diminishing this tension in our text when people lose a loved one and they are grieving. He's, he's not saying don't grieve. But he's saying in the midst of your grief, I want to infuse a confidence that's unshakable. In the midst of your grief, this, this confidence no one can snatch from you. That is that we have this assurance that our salvation is secure in Christ and one day, whether we have died or we are living upon his return, we will meet him in the air. Fact, final, finish. Take that to the bank. Jesus makes this point beautifully in John 16, my closing verse. I'll, I'll share this. Very, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. Some people are saying, yep, my time is very soon. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. This is Jesus speaking. Listen, this is Jesus speaking to you. I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one, no one, no one will take away your joy. Preach that to yourself. Share that with others. We are a people of hope. And one day all the burdens and the struggles and the grief and the sadness and the loss and the illness, all of that will just be evaporated and we, it will be replaced by a joy so overwhelming that we'll fall on our knees before our Savior and worship Him with every fiber in our body. On the day that Jesus visits us, that day, will be a day like no other. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises in your word. We thank you for the foundation of those promises rooted in Christ who is part of the salvation story that we get to read about in scripture. We thank you, Lord, for giving us a lens into what we can expect, even though the details are not prescriptive, not, not detailed enough for us to kind of grab it all together. There's enough detail, Father, to know that Christ is going to take us to be with him on this new earth forever. And Lord, help us to encourage one another. And if there's anyone here this morning, Father, that does not know this hope in Jesus Christ, that has not surrendered their life to Christ, that has not repented and said, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior, forgive me. There are those here this morning, touch their hearts in a special way. Help them to know that they have a Savior who loves them, who gave their life for them, and will secure their eternal passage into his eternal home. Fill us with comfort, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.